So, well, welcome to the journey. And so today we have a very special guest with us, um, and and actually someone who had been on the show. Uh, we were just talking about pre-pandemic, so we're talking now three years ago, um, Mary Kay three three plus years ago when Mary Kay you were on the show originally. Because that the reason why I remember that is because we were in person when we uh, in our little makeshift studio that we had at Dr. Eckberg's office. And um, now we we do it via Zoom. Um, I always enjoy being in person uh, better, but it, this is a whole lot easier and more convenient. And and the production end of it on the backside is a lot easier as well. So that's why we switched over. But well, welcome to welcome back to the journey. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's so much fun to be here. Yeah, well, great. Well, and I always know that whenever we have conversations, they always are fun conversations. And and uh, and as we, you know, regardless of which way our conversations go, but maybe just to kind of bring the bring the uh, listeners up to speed about who you are, um, before we jump into your backstory and and how you got to where you're at now, maybe just tell them a little bit about yourself with like, what do you do for fun if you're not working? <laughs> well, we have, I'm a real swinger. Okay. We have five <laughs> swings in our yard. I think you've heard this before. <laughs> so I love to play. Uh, and that is one of the things that got me into this journey, I think, is my love of play and laughter. Uh, but for fun, I um, love to ride my bike. We like to hike. We like to travel. Uh, and I'm always looking for something new to do um, and try. I love art and music. And um, most of all, I love my grandkids. So with there's 12 of them, as you know. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. they are so much fun to be with. So lots of stuff going on in my life, but the playfulness and the fun um, are I'm always searching for. Sure, sure. Well, I imagine um, the fact that you love to play either on swings or on bikes or just finding new things uh, to do in the sense of play, I imagine that you have a leg up on other grandparents um, because as a general rule, I think kids love to play. And if they have an adult, a grandparent who wants to play too, um, that's probably, you're probably in bonus territory. <laughs> we have had so much fun together and, you know, they bring laughter and joy into our lives. And we're always looking for, um, as you know, with 12 of them, they're each individuals uh, and have different ideas and interests. And so we've gone exploring in all kinds of different ways with them. So that's been really a um, fun part of our lives and a whole new adventure that we never ever dreamed of. You know, it's just a blessing. Sure. And and so, Mary Kay, how, how, uh, how many children do you have? And you have 12 grandchildren, but how many children do you have? Right. We have four. Okay. Four kids. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and professionally work-wise you first came into the work world um, as an educator. And exactly. And so yeah. so tell us a little bit about your background as an educator. And then when did you make the switch out of, out of education? Well, I'm not sure I ever switched out of education. I still consider myself um, an educator. And so when I graduated from Northern Illinois University, I had a degree in early childhood. 
And at that point, they were just making, um, the law was just requiring kindergarten in every school in the state. This tells you how far, um, ago, how long ago it was. And so I got a job as a kindergarten teacher in Streeter, Illinois. It was a high poverty school. I learned a lot, but that actually um, brought home to me the reality of trying to um, incorporate what I had learned in my education process of using play to promote learning because we do learn through play. And so uh, the hard reality was that the expectations were that these kids at age five would sit in their seats and uh, study letters and numbers, which we know now is um, something that comes through learning through play. And so playful activities are the best ways to learn. And so I started my journey of studying how we best learn. And of course that brought me to, uh, through play to the field of laughter and humor. So it has been a journey like this. <laughs> I never thought that I'd end up, um, you know, with my interest in play and how kids learn and the neuroscience of, of learning, which is actually what I started studying at that point, um, that I would end up realize how, realizing how important play and laughter and fun are in the process of uh, learning. So um, it's been it's been a wild journey, um, balancing my own family, my my kids with, um, you know, different jobs and trying to balance work and family uh, and teaching. So I've taught in every grade level. I did substitute teaching um, and I've taught at the university level. Uh, and so it's been just really um phenomenal German journey that hit, in which I've learned a lot from a lot of different people. Yeah, I, I can just I can just imagine. I mean, to your point earlier about as a grandparent recognizing that each one of your 12 grandchildren are going to teach you something new about life and and through their eyes through their experience and through the shared experiences that you have with them um you know it's going to is going to continue to allow you to grow and 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 develop that way and and so I'm I can definitely see how throughout your journey each part of it made maybe at the time wasn't making sense or maybe made more sense later on right and and I know that has definitely been my experiences as well so Maybe if you could maybe first kind of give us a little bit, we don't have to go too deep into the weeds of it, but if you want to give us maybe just a little bit of maybe the the research regarding the use of play, um, because I, I think we're, we're probably going to have three different people in the, listening to us right now, right? The ones that utilize already see the benefit of play and, and they're going to be going, you know, you know, definitely on board and totally get that. And, you know, you can see different ways of how they already incorporate that, you know, within their workplace. We have another group that is like, nope, this is serious business. We, you know, and <laughs> I don't see where this fits. And then you have probably a larger group that's somewhere in between that continuum, right? This is somewhere between the, 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 the extreme. And, and, and so maybe tell us a little bit about what what you found out through research and your own experience of, of 
of how play can be the play can be the the vehicle in which learning can happen. <laughs> okay. Um, so when I started studying the research on the neuroscience of learning, uh, I actually my resume looks like I'm a hundred. I'm not quite that old, but all of my uh, experiences really led up to um, my last job, which was at the Regional Office of Education in Boone, Winnebago County. And I worked with over 200 teachers and schools and um, administrators and teachers from all walks of life and from all levels. And so the part of my job was to bring back the research to the people in our community. And so I was able to go to a lot of brain research conferences. And I will never forget, I went to one and I asked um, Bob Sylvester, who became a mentor for me, I asked him, you know, what do you know about humor and the brain? And how is humor related to learning? And at this point, I had evolved from play into looking more at, um, because play is a trigger for laughter and what are the benefits of laughter and humor for learning as well as play. And so it had all evolved into this um, aha moment when I realized that laughter and humor are pretty much not always existent in schools as is play, even though everybody says it's important. Um, they don't purposely put humor into the curriculum or laughter or play. So I asked him, you know, what he thought about the benefits of humor for learning and the brain. And he told me, if you can figure that out, you'll get the Nobel Peace Prize. And I met with him again. We had dinner that night together. And I had started putting together some of my information into um, some um, workshops that I was doing. And so he went through it all with me. And that's when my book, first book was started um, in gathering all the information of humor and laughter and play and what we know about that and how that impacts learning. And so my first book was done with him as a mentor. Uh, and the book is called Using Humor to Maximize Learning. And so the first part of that was all the research that I had learned um, and in that whole process of bringing the research to all of the uh, teachers and educators in our area, I learned from them as to how they were uh, incorporating that into their classrooms. And not only that, but the difficulty of doing so. One of my aha moments was that I worked directly with a couple of schools to see if we could make a difference by bringing humor to their staff and laughter and helping with the stress the teachers were feeling and also the kids were feeling. So we had, I had a program in two different schools that I worked with different administrators and trying to incorporate laughter and humor as a strategy for classroom um, uh, maximizing learning. And what one of the teachers said to me, a fifth grade teacher was an aha moment. Uh, she said, I started using some play techniques and laughter techniques. And one of the kids looked at me and said, teacher, we're too old for this. 
And so one of my moments of realization was that we gradually take play and laughter and humor out of kids' lives. And we put so much stress on them with the educational um, objectives that we know kids need to reach. Um, but that laughter and play are not part of that. Uh, and so a lot of the teachers that I worked with provided me with hands-on um, information and the difficulty of incorporating it, the older kids got. And one of the other learning experiences for me was when I went to do workshops in high schools and they would also, the teachers would always say, we don't have time for learning and for laughter and play. We have so much we have to do. And of course, teachers are so stressed that the very thing that should not be occurring is taking laughter and fun and play out of our schools. I don't know. I've rambled here. But... No, 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 no. You're, well, I think you make some phenomenal points. And and I do, I do think... I, I, when you were just saying that, I remember, I don't remember exactly what, I, I think I was in fourth grade. So I wasn't super young, but I was in grade school. And I remember bringing a, a certain amount of my toys that I had as a fourth grader to my mom and saying, I don't need these anymore. I don't, I don't need to play with toys anymore. I want to be grown up or something, wow. to, something to that effect. Right. Now, I think there was probably times where I secretly, you know, would still get the toys out and play and play in the room, you know, uh, you know, where no one else was around. But I don't believe I openly played with toys after that or around that time period. And again, I don't remember why that was or what made me think at that point I should make this some type of declaration or announcement or whatever. But I clearly do remember that was a lot of what I thought growing up is that uh, if, if playing is playing with toys is for little kids and grownups don't play. I didn't do video games, which were just coming out at that time. Um, and sports was definitely not playing. Um, I saw sports as uh, what later turned into where I where I developed my identity. And uh, right or wrong, and probably more wrong at the time than right, um, is is where where that happened. And there was no sports was not fun. Sports were there was a it was a it was a means to an end um, why I did sports. And, um, and so, and, and I didn't do any type of things in between my sports. I wasn't, um, you know, I slowly be, stopped being a multi-sport athlete, which now we know is not necessarily the best for athletes, especially younger ones. Um, but I wanted to become more and more focused on what I was doing, even before it became popular to do that. Um, Again, it was about trying to eliminate those distractions. But part of what my mindset was, because I was early on very disciplined, it was eliminating anything that seemed to be childish. So school wasn't school was not necessarily fun either because it was serious. <laughs> and you don't get in trouble at school. That was that was my whole, you know, whole thing. So 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 let's say for individuals, like if you would have met a younger version of Kevin, right? 
what would you say if I was, uh, let's say, working as an educator or a school social worker or whatever, what would you say? How I would go, no, 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 uh, I, I don't I don't know how to do that, Mary. What would you suggest um, for someone uh, who's learned that that play is for for babies play is for maybe kindergartners but now we're in first grade let's get serious let's get in rows and get serious um what would you suggest uh to an old school kevin (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that we know is that play can help put information into the long-term memory um and so can humor and laughter and so when i work with teachers or kids, um, finding strategies to help put information into the long-term memory. One of the seventh grade teachers that I worked with had the most wonderful technique I've ever seen is he assigned chapters to his students. Uh, Each student had part of the chapter to learn and to create a test question out of that section of the the chapter. But the test question had to be in the form of a joke or a riddle. Mm -hmm. And so the creative process that went on for those kids, not only did they learn really well that section of their um, studies, but they had so much fun creating the jokes and trying to trick their fellow students into figuring out what the answer was. Um, It was one of the most creative ways of actually learning how to use humor in a really effective way. There are lots of examples of teachers that are doing that every day. Um, And a lot of teachers told me that humor and laughter is often... um, frowned upon in our education system because there's this perception that if you're laughing and playing, you can't be learning. And it's prevalent in the workplace as well. Uh, So the opposite of that is true. We know from the research that they've actually done a lot of research with mice, uh, putting mice isolated in a cage, putting a mouse with toys, putting a mouse with friends, putting a mouse with toys and friends, and then putting a mouse into the wild. And the mouse in the wild had the most connections in the brain of any of the mice. So if we just put kids in a classroom with papers and pencils, or if we put kids in a classroom with friends, or if we even combine the two in the learning process. What we know is when kids are able to play and be creative, their brains develop at the highest rate. Uh, So that research is pretty phenomenal. Uh, There's a lot of really quality research out there on the benefits of laughter play. And of course we know now that humor and laughter Uh, relieve stress and depression and anxiety. And I really think a lot of the cause of the stress and anxiety that we have with kids is because there's so much pressure on them, like there was on you to succeed and to do well. And uh, so we've taken out the playfulness and the fun at the expense of having our kids pretty anxious and stressed and depressed. 
No, no, I, I very much that is what we see. Uh, what I see when I go into the schools and one of my number one talks that I do right now for the last two years is man for, for schools is managing stress and developing resilience. And so that's the number one for the educators as well as for the students. Um, even, even now is more uh, sought after than the suicide awareness um, talks that oh. I do. So it's uh, I mean, I think it all is on the same continuum anyways, um, but that is the one that has asked for repetitively now, um, more so than even the suicide awareness. And and I and I think it's you know I, I think of also from a, from a counseling what we see coming into the office uh, that uh, it's the steer the the stigma and the stereotype around counseling is that you can use play with you know, and it's called play therapy, right? And, and therapy right. play, and yep. there's different modalities that we use, but they're almost all designed around kids and, and working with youth. And I know that uh, regardless if it's my own therapist or if I'm working with um, some, of, some of my adult clients, that the use of an icebreaker, the use of having fun, um, of, of, of telling stories, you know, those are all ways that makes the counseling experience more rich, but it's what they remember when they leave. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're really, um, as you know, I belong to the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. And uh, I teach something called the Humor Academy, which is a three-year course that ends up in being a certified humor professional. And I collaborate with a lot of other people that have done the research in humor and laughter studies. And there are quite a few counselors now. It's a new, it's almost pioneering research right now for counselors and how you use humor therapy in counseling sessions with adults. And so um, Steve Sultanoff, who has been a real um support for the program and a real wealth of knowledge for me in this whole process has started using that. And he tells several stories about how he started using that. And it just came about um, with a woman who was very resistant to even laughing. And so and when she realized that that was easing her depression, she realized that maybe she didn't want to get rid of her depression. He needs to tell the story, but um it's quite interesting. You cannot be laughing and depressed at the same time. Your brain doesn't function that way. So when you're laughing, um, it, you have all kinds of wonderful things happening to your body, including uh, relieving stress. And we in AATH were thrilled about four years ago, Mayo Clinic actually put laughter as a way to reduce stress and depression as a um, prescription, uh, which is one of the first times that we've actually seen laughter and humor being used um, as a way to um, combat stress and anxiety. So it's a there's a page on their website. So the research is emerging and it's really fun to see. Um, so that's one of the things that, um, I teach now as an educator is um, uh, my second book is a textbook for the class 
uh, the first year we studied the theory of humor and laughter and um, how it's used in, in all kinds of ways to relieve stress, anxiety. We know that when you're trying to cope with pain, um, when you're going through the grieving process, you know you're starting to heal when you can start to laugh. Um, and another analogy I use a lot of times is when you go to a funeral, even though it's very sad and very serious, a lot of times people will start telling stories about that person and the laughter emerges. And that's healing. Laughter and tears are left, the tears from laughter and crying are very closely related, although they're different. Uh, the studies of that has shown that they're different. But anyway, a whole lot of interesting research going on right now on the whole field. And I know that part of that talk that I do is focusing in on um, when we're talking about stress. We And I just had did an episode a few, few weeks ago on this uh, where we talk about different ways to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And one of those ways is the use of humor. And um, and it may be uh, similar to what you just said in the grieving process. It may be, you know, uh, intentionally watching a comedian or some type of movie or sitcom that you that you are drawn to that allow you to laugh. But it it allows you to your your to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for that rest and digest on the backside of uh of that fight or flight. Right. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, and I don't, and so I think what, what's always interesting to me when, when I think about play, because like in play, even though my background is, is that, you know, that was childish and all those types of things, I can see more of that because I think of now as an adult, I think of playfulness as is like that that's that's okay but, but i remember when we first met and you talked about the humor academy and my first thought came i'm not funny i i wouldn't be able to tell jokes i don't i don't remember jokes i don't you know so i think of jokes or i think of that when i think of humor and maybe touch a little bit on that what do you, what what would you how would you differentiate for someone like myself or some other listener that would automatically have their guard up because they're thinking humor is Robin Williams or humor is, you know, uh, someone like that. Yeah. That's a, a real common misperception because um, number one, play is a trigger for laughter. And so when people are being playful, a lot of times the laughter will emerge, but um, what we always say is you don't need to be funny you just need to see funny. Mm -hmm. uh, so whatever happens to you in life, if you can see the humor or the funny in it, and it's the, the idea of flipping whatever it is that happens to you into a more humorous mode. And it gets easier the more you practice it. So I encourage people to practice the strategy of seeing funny. Um, I think a lot of people put them selves into a pressure situation feeling they need to be funny and that's um so instead of being funny it's seeing funny and and providing laughter about um you know whatever happens to you in life that is weird or unusual or even between friends um 
You know, if you go to a party and you hear a whole bunch of people laughing at a side of the room, that's where you want to be. Laughter is a tonic. It is something that people are drawn to. And you want to be with people that are fun, not necessarily funny, but people that can see the humor in life. And so, um, and there's also people out there that I named in my book as humor doomers. I made that term up and I was originally told by one of the publishers that I couldn't, um, that it was too cutesy, but actually it's the name that most people are drawn to in my books and in my work, because a humor doer is somebody who um, has a challenge with finding humor in their own life. They're usually very unhappy people. And when they see you being happy and excited and playful and having fun, they will tend to put you down. And so um, they can take the joy. They like to suck the joy out of other people because they don't have any joy themselves. So, uh, you know, there are, and it didn't hit me until I worked in an office once and I was all excited. I came into work one day and it was so cold and miserable, a January day in Illinois. And I said, let's do a party. You know, we'll have a Hawaiian party tomorrow. Everybody will bring stuff. And one of the people in the office looked at me and said, you don't have enough to do, do you, Mary Kay? And that night I laid thinking, why did she say that? You know, we can have fun and work and be engaged, but she was truly a joyless person. <laughs> and that's when humor doomer terminology came. I just, out of frustration, I just said, she's just nothing but a humor doomer. And she was trying to take the joy out of, and I've met a lot of people like that. And I have found a lot of people have also found that in their lives, that there are people that are, um, you know, and so I encourage people to treat those other people with kindness and um, maybe put happy little notes in their life or try to bring them joy, but they are not your responsibility and just continue with your um, own playful and joyful self and not let the humor doomers of the world get you down. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's interesting that you. I just was having a conversation with someone last week um, about. I was saying it a little bit different way, um, but it was a quote from one of Garth Brooks' songs from the '90s. It was uh, a song called "The Change," and it was. And there's a line in there. It says that I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to make sure the world doesn't change me. And, yes. and I, and I, there is going to always be individuals, maybe because of temperament, maybe because of like myself, a learned behavior that has worked to a degree. And, and then we hang on to it as a defense mechanism. Um, or, or maybe it's, it's a response to a lot of setbacks in their life of, of trauma and different things Absolutely. that, that they have responded that way of self-preservation of going, I'm not going to be vulnerable and expose myself by being present. I'm going to always have this half, half empty. Uh, it's like, it's like in, some individuals who position themselves as being half empty are trying to avoid being hurt or disappointed again. Yeah. There's a fear there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and so, you know, it is, I think, 
like you said, it's a it's a matter of being open and it's a matter of practicing. And for some people, they're going to jump into the deep end. And it's just like, you know, because they've been there so many times before and they don't, it isn't a worry. And others are going to have to just slowly dip their toe in because um, either one, they don't know how to swim in humor at all or play um, or, or, or two, they um, they're, they're concerned about something that could happen. Um, and that fear is, but um but most of the time, regardless of the age or regardless of of experience, once someone gets into the the water, right, um, they may not be the greatest swimmer, but they they can they can enjoy they can enjoy it for what it is, right? That's a great analogy. Yeah, so feel it's... free to use that one. <laughs> so... <laughs> I will. I will. Actually, I've had teachers. And uh, forgive me if I've already said this, but um, I've had teachers tell me that they have to close their door so nobody knows that they're having fun with their kids because there's such an expectation that humor is so serious. And then I've had administrators say, well, I'd love to include more humor and laughter in my school, but what is the school board going to say, mm -hmm. you know, when they come into our building and everybody's laughing and having a good time. And so there's a perception out there that there's not learning or um, serious work going on when there's play and laughter. But one of the things I encourage people to do is when they go into an office or go into a store to observe the mood and to see, because when the workplace is filled with fun, it's a trusting workplace. Trust and laughter go hand in hand. And when there's laughter in an environment, there's a lot of trust usually because people feel free to laugh. And if they don't feel free or if their workplace is constrictive um, to having fun and play, that's where the fear comes in. And it's a real fear in a lot of our workplaces where there is a perception that if you're laughing and playing that you can't be accomplishing uh, the learning process or your work isn't getting done. And so that was the perception that this woman had for me, what I wasn't getting my work done um, because I was having too much fun. Well, and, and to piggyback off of that, this was probably sometime in the past six months or so, I was working with a school, um, actually in this case, it was a school district. And the superintendent and the principals, the main administrations were all on board regarding social emotional learning. And, and the, some of the ideas that we're talking about incorporating that into the classroom and, and, and not just a, a token 15 minutes a day during homeroom, um, right. but, but within the classrooms itself, the resistance was coming from a certain percentage of the teachers. Mm -hmm. not from the administration, not from the school board, that work had already been done. I wonder, looking back on it now, I wonder if some of it had to do with some of the messages that they may have had that were similar to mine. Maybe, right. maybe that was one aspect of it. But when you gave the example of the, the, the middle school instructor that had them break down the chapters or, or the sections of the chapter and had to write a question that was in a form of a joke or a rhyme or a story or a parable or something like that. 
the first thought that came to came to me is is that one i think there would be the benefits the struggle right the 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 tension within the struggle for the students to do that because it's definitely different than regurgitating and memorizing so that's going to be a stretch so there's nothing going to be easy about that and then and then having those types of questions those are not straightforward questions. So they're they're gonna, it's gonna be a higher level of thinking that has to happen. Um right. and it's gonna be more work on initially more work on the teacher to be thinking outside the box of how to set up an assignment like that and then how to coach the students that initially are going to struggle with it because they're going to be initially struggling because it's not what they did in sixth grade or fifth grade. Right. Um and and so I I wonder if if part of the resistance is that initially it's harder because it is going to be more work because it, it it's a different way of setting up the curriculum. It's a different way of learning. It's a different way of engagement um, where, where like when I as counselor is I'm working with my own counselors and helping them develop as therapists, we, we talk about setting up the therapeutic container to develop the therapeutic relationship. We don't ever talk, we aren't even talking about certain interventions or techniques. We're just talking about setting up, which is unique for each one of my therapists to create that therapeutic space and that and start developing that therapeutic relationship. And and that's universal regardless of what a client comes in with. And and so I can see that that may be some of the challenges uh for some of our educators. Um that it's going to take more effort at first. You know, you're bringing up a really good point here, Kevin, because the number one characteristic that students say they value in a teacher is a sense of humor when they do research. And so some for some people, it's easier than others to incorporate this, this kind of thing. But we don't teach how to incorporate humor at the college level when you're going through coursework for becoming an educator. We don't take those teachers that have a knack for controlling the classroom using humor and laughter. There are teachers that can just look at somebody, make that kid laugh and behave. And that is a skill that we don't teach. We don't, um, you know, we don't study it. We don't um, figure out what, how is that teacher doing that and how is that successful in a school? And so it starts with the um, whole program of educating te- the, the education program for teachers and educators in, you know, um, placing a value on play throughout the curriculum and how, you know, if we know that teach- the teachers that have a sense of humor are the most um that's a valued trait, then how do we promote that? And how do we explore that? And how do we get those teachers into the college education courses to share what they know and how they do it and how they learn? And how do we study that in the classroom? How do we study that teachers that's doing that already? Um, And so I think it's a whole process of, you know, flipping how we've done education in the past and, um, my master's was in adult education where people set their own goals for learning. And a lot of times our kids are graduating from school saying, okay, what is it you want me to learn? 
rather than saying, okay, this is what I want to learn. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole different process. So yeah, we could get, we could go on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, one of the things I want you to just touch on just kind of just maybe briefly is we have, a, we have a lot of our listeners that they may have directly or indirectly have ties to uh, the educational system, right? Either directly because they themselves are educators or they're in some kind of adjunct role like that, um, or they have kids or grandkids that are uh, that are in the school system. Uh, but you have also done some work on parenting and grandparenting um, from an aspect of utilizing play. And you, you alluded to that at the beginning. So maybe if you could just share just a little bit about that, or maybe even um, a couple suggestions um, for our listeners to take away as uh, from from a, from an aunt or uncle, from a parent or grandparent perspective, what would be some suggestions regarding this idea of, of using play to trigger humor and laughter? Uh, we have another hour, right, Kevin? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I've developed are the five stages of humor development. Uh, because it depends on the age of each um, of the kids and the stage that they're going. So kids go through, we all go through different stages of humor development. So the five stages that I've um, explored in my books um, talk about what you can do at each stage of development to nurture that sense of humor. And so the first stage is the peekaboo stage, which is birth through two. And parents across all curriculum, I mean, all cultures um, do this. They try to get a baby to smile and laugh. Very first thing that all parents, grandparents try to do. And you make googie eyes and you, you know, but you play the game peekaboo, which is a game that we we use our whole life in humor. So you hold the blanket up in front of the kid and, and you, um, the child is nervous or anxious because they can't see the caregiver anymore. And when you pull the blanket down, they're relieved and then they usually laugh. So it's a game that's encouraging laughter with babies, but this, there's a three-step process. The first is anxiety when they don't, you don't see the caregiver anymore. The second is relief. And then the third is laughter. And we use that all through our lives. So that's the very first stage. The other stages uh, that we go through, I'm not going to go through them all, but it depends on, uh, it's fluid. Um, And I talk a lot about um, nature versus nurture. And you alluded to that earlier about some kids are born on a different, I mean, we have a continuum of kids. I've got four kids. I've got kids of my own that, you know, were more anxious and followed the rules and other kids that were like out there, Um, you know, and so I give the example of um, one of my kids, you know, would say, I have a test at the end of the month. I've really got to study. I've got to work hard. And my other child that morning at eight o'clock would say, oh, yeah, I better start preparing this research paper. Let's do it 10 o'clock this morning. So kids are born differently. And so you react to them differently. And the strategies that you use for different children are different that way. Um, But so there's a challenge between nature and nurture. And what kind of environment did you grow up in? You know, um, for instance, my parents, one of my parents, my dad was always laughing and playful and having fun. And my mother was more reserved 
And so I have a combination of both. I'm very focused on getting things done, but also I, I love the playfulness of my father. So, you know, for people that grow up with two very serious parents, it's a little bit harder for them to, um, to have that um, desire to break out of that. And it's a little more difficult. And people that grew up with two parents that were always having fun, it's a lot easier for them. So there's a whole lot of um, uh, ingredients that go into making a person's sense of humor. Uh, and so, you know, those are some of the things that we look at when we're looking at. And with a classroom of kids or with clients, you know, what is their background, you know, because that's going to impact how they react to the whole idea of implementing humor and laughter. But again, I want to go back to the, the whole idea. And I think it's just simple. Um, instead of trying to be funny, just seeing the funny in life. And, and every day at the end of the day, maybe even jotting down something that was funny. And your examples of looking for funny movies and memes and look for other people that bring laughter to your life. So seek those out. You know, those are all strategies that um, can really be effective in bringing more play into your life. Perfect. Well, I, I, you know, Mary Kay, there is so many different things, you know, nuggets that you've kind of dropped, you know, for us today about this idea of, uh, and I think it is very much, you know, of, of you hear something funny a comedian says, or somebody tells you a joke or something, and then without practicing, you try to say the joke again. And, um, <laughs> and usually we get discouraged because we haven't practiced it, but if we actually wrote it down and actually looked it over before we try to tell it a second time, maybe um, it might actually come across and it might encourage us to uh, um, uh, encourage us to do it more often. We have a we have a friend of ours and I'll, I'll end on this note. We have a friend of ours up uh, by outside of our lake home and he has a restaurant bar, which is very classic Wisconsin, you know, central to northern Wisconsin type. You know, they're all kind of combined. And he is the classic bar owner, uh, restaurant owner, where he comes out into the, into the, you know, the, the patrons and he tells jokes and he has all these different, uh, things that he uses, uh, that he buys that he is funny. And then he just always has new jokes every time we're there. And, um, I don't know if I can actually remember them, uh, you know, but, uh, but it, it is, it always, uh, that's something that his name is Billy. And that's something that we could always assure that, uh, Billy's going to have a joke or have something for us, um, to, to lighten things up. So Mary Kay, what would be if, if someone wanted to reach out to you, or get in contact with you or know, learn more either as a professional or personally, what's the best way to reach you or, or get one of your books or something like that? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, I do have a website. Okay. It's questforhumor.com. Um, and uh, the, the books that I have available, the last book that I wrote is Legacy of Laughter. It's a grandparent guide and playbook. And it is available locally in quite a few different places. Um, it's at Discovery Center, Midway Village, um, and uh, Porch. So it's available in a lot of local areas. Um, it's also at OSF Hospital Gift Store because new grandparents like to have a book on incorporating humor into with their grandchildren. Um, but 
yeah, reach out to me on my website. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can easily find me there uh, and Facebook. I'm always happy to connect on social media. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, Mary Kay, as always, I just, I always, I mean, we just did a talk a couple of weeks ago and I always enjoy spending time with you and, and doing projects together with you. And, um, and I appreciate the work that you're doing um, and, and the work that you are, you're bringing to others and helping them be, uh, be creative and, and utilize uh, play to uh, have more humor in their life. So uh, thank you again. For being with us. Back at you, Kevin. You're making a difference in the world, like I said. And so thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. Um, if there is somebody that uh, you think would benefit from the conversation that Mary Kay and I had today, um, please uh, share this, share some of the ideas that we're talking about. Maybe share uh, Mary Kay's uh, website and check it out yourself, um, because I think we could all uh, benefit for having more play and humor in our lives because there's definitely enough things out there um, that can make the world be half empty. So we can be intentional about use, utilizing play and humor. So once again, Mary Kay, thank you for being with us. And uh, I look forward to being with everybody uh, next week. Thank you so much, Kevin.